It is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and we find ourselves this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. The title of my sermon is Under Authority, the Submissive Life. And your keywords are head, authority, and man for our worshipers and training. And so what we'll be looking at today is men and women and the roles of each. And the passage we're going to cover uh, lies in stark contrast to today's uh, conventional wisdom in our culture. So we need to frame this within the context of chapter 11, the problem that Paul is beginning to address here in chapter 11. And that is the problem of disorder in worship. There was disorder in the worship of the saints. And he will cover this for several chapters. Chapter 11 specifically, he's going to address uh, first the behavior of some of the Corinthian women. And secondly, he will address the Lord's Supper, which we will see over the next few weeks. So what Paul is outlining here are principles for men and women in all of life. He's speaking specifically of uh, the church, but these will go and be a part of all of the Christian life. And we will look at how that is. But before we jump into the text, I want to uh, kind of outline where uh, we're going to be looking at specifically because there's three kind of major tracks that can be run down in terms of uh, when we discuss these elements of, of uh, manhood and womanhood. Uh, these are the three. The first is feminism. Theologically, we call that egalitarianism. And this is the view that, um, that there, are, uh, there are women who, uh, while created equal, have also been created and given uh, all the same roles as men. And so women and men have no distinctive differences and that women should fight to achieve the same thing that men achieve. The other is chauvinism. Theologically, we call this hierarchicalism. And these are the men who don't think women should vote or read or do anything of uh, value, but simply stay at home and uh, do what they want them to do for them. Uh, we hold to neither of these. Uh, we hold to uh, a position of chivalry. Theologically, we call it complementarianism. That men and women have been created by God to complement one another. That we work in unison as equally created beings with specific roles. God made men and women. We see that at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And He said that it was what? Very good. And He made them with differences. And in those differences, He made them to be very good. So we're going to see through this passage that Paul continues to look back to creation. So he's addressing here what we call creation principles. Principles that are born out from the very beginning. That apply to all of mankind because this is how God created it to be. 
So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is, woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So, very easy, straightforward text, right? No problems here. (laughs) If we understand and believe what the Apostle Paul is writing about in verses 2 and 3, then the rest of the text that we are going to cover will be straightforward. So we'll have to deal with the application. So let's look at verses 2 and 3. First, the Apostle Paul begins with a commendation. Remember, in chapter 7, as we've been leading up to this, the Apostle Paul referenced that he is writing about the manners of which they wrote him about. So they were writing to him certain questions that they had about, uh, about practices within the church and in the Christian community, and now he is writing back to them to answer their questions. And in this verse, verse 2, Paul is saying, I'm your pastor, I love you, I've taught you, you've listened, I'm glad you're asking questions, you've learned some things, but when it comes to this issue of men and women, you're totally screwed up on this because... Uh, most likely, you live in Corinth. Okay, any city in America and Corinth, same thing. Okay, when we address these issues, we can see all of this permeating our culture in the very same way it did in the city of Corinth. So Paul is addressing them and saying, you're getting your cues from culture and not from Scripture. And as your pastor, I want to correct you so you have clarity of how God made us male and female. So don't disregard this. It is God's created order before the fall of mankind. 
So he's commending them for hearing from him, for writing to him and asking him that they at least have a concern about this. But he very quickly moves on to tell them uh, that they are very confused on this issue. So what is his concern? Verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. No controversy here. He says, But I want... I want you to understand this. I want you to hear this. In other words, he's saying, listen up, this is very, very important. Paul begins by stressing this pattern or this model for authority and submission. Authority and submission. And he does so by doing uh, by outlining what theologically we called functional we call it functional subordinationism so i'm going to give you a few big words today so you can get your money's worth and and this is when he uses the trinity as the model the trinity is the model that we are looking at in terms of authority and submission functional subordinationism what this means is that god exists in trinitarian community Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist together. How many gods? One. How many subsistences or persons? Three. God exists as one God. There is one God who exists in three subsistences, as our confession says. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see within this, we see... That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, right? They share the same attributes. They are all fully God. But is there authority and is there difference within the Trinity? Yes. We just read in Mark 14 earlier, as He is praying, as Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane to the Father, not My will, but Yours be done. He also said, I didn't come to do My will, but the will of Him who sent Me. And yet simultaneously, Jesus also says, I and the Father are what? One. So we see their equality. We see that... They share attributes. We see that within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God. And yet, we see this pattern of authority and submission. Jesus is simultaneously saying, I am one with the Father. And if you've seen me, you have seen Him. I also submit to the Father's authority, fulfilling His mission, speaking His words. He's not contradicting himself. He's saying that these work in perfect unison. So how does this relate to us? Man and woman created in God's image and likeness. Are man and woman created equally? Yes. Are we both image bearers of God? Yes. Is authority to be exercised and respected in our lives? Yes. But is there a difference in who holds the authority and who is called to submit? Yes. Paul stresses this pattern of authority in verse 3. He is very comprehensive. 
He begins, the head of every man is Christ. Which men is he talking about? Every man. Even unbelievers? Yes, even unbelievers. Remember, we're talking about creation principles. Authority and submission that were born out from the very beginning of creation. It pervades the entire universe regardless of whether or not one submits to the headship of Christ. And this is not just talking about a husband's relationship to his wife. It's men and women. And in this passage, you'll see simultaneous uh, translations. One will say uh, man and wife and others will say men and women. Uh, we're talking about essentially the same thing here. Look at verses 8 and 9. They refer to creation, not culture. Verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. How? The Lord took her out of the rib of man. Verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Remember, man was milling about the earth, naming the animals, and the Lord said it is not good that he should be alone. He needs a companion. He needs a helper. So woman was created out of man for man. So this word head that we see throughout, it is a word that expresses authority. So we see Christ as the head over every man, and it applies to every element of man's life. It applies in our home. In the home, as a father, a man is to model Christ. It applies in the church. The leaders of a church are called to model Christ. It is in our marriages. We are called to model Christ. And so we see Christ is the head over every man. And Paul is masterfully here in this verse. He's going to masterfully encase this debate, uh, this debated issue into two undebated issues. Right? No one's debating seriously that Christ is the head over every man. Likewise, at the end of that verse, he says, the Father is over the Son. He was obedient even to death. Not my will, but yours be done. And so he takes these two things that the Corinthians surely believed and understood and, and had no real question about, and he puts those on each end of this verse to encase what it was that they were struggling through. And he uses this to display the point of the head of a wife or a woman is a man or husband. Because there were ladies in Corinth who were saying, I am free in Christ and so I will do as I please. Remember, we've been uh, walking along and we've seen all along the Corinthians were in terrible danger as they uh, continued to press the boundaries in terms of Christian liberties. And this was one for the ladies. I'm free in Christ. I'm going to do as I want. And Paul is saying you cannot function that way. Look at God's created order. Look at how Christ submits to the Father. And a lot of women, and I've spoken to some of them, will say, I don't need to submit to any authority. Well, Jesus did. And if it's good for Him, surely it's good for you. Christ's submission to the Father did not make Him any less than the Father. 
did not make him any different in his essential nature. In the same way, women submitting to men does not make them second-class citizens or inferior in any way. A woman's submission to man is a recognition that God is Almighty God, He is sovereign in His dealings, and what He says goes because He is Lord. And a lot of men will read this and say, Great, I love being the boss. That's not what we're talking about. A man's authority is not ultimate. God's is. Should a woman follow a man into sin? Absolutely not. Most men in our culture fall into one of two categories. One, they're chauvinistic idiots who don't lead anybody at all. They make demands of women. They expect women to serve them solely. They think very highly of themselves and very low of others. They're abusive. The other and probably more prominent in our culture way that many men walk is as weak, spineless individuals who take a back seat because they're afraid of leadership. They're afraid of their wives, they're afraid of their children, and they want to be everyone's buddy. They take no role of leadership whatsoever. And so as we look at two extremes, we always find the sweet spot in the middle. The best thing that a man can do is to know his Bible, to love the Lord, to make decisions with his wife based on the Scriptures, to sit down, open the Bible and say, okay, here's what we're going to do because God said so. This is how God tells me, commands me to lead our family. So the vast majority of leadership in the home is the man opening his Bible, explaining to the family what God intends, and in doing so, he is leading, and he is submitting to Christ's authority. Look, we are all under some type of authority, right? In the church, the Bible calls for men and women to be under the authority of the elders. Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders, submit to their authority, make their work a joy and not a burden. Please memorize that. Elders are under the authority of whom? Christ and one another. This is why we as a congregation don't have a senior pastor. We are pastors to one another, the three of us. We submit to one another as our authority. Therefore, your elders are under the same authority as everyone else in the congregation. And authority is good for all of us. It protects us, it nurtures us, it grows us, it allows us to be like Jesus, respecting His authority. We are all under authority and it is good for us. So what does that look like in the worship of the church? Paul moves on to address that men and women are called to respect godly authority in verses 4 through 10. And we get into a lot of questions here, so we'll tackle them all, hopefully, to get to the principle being 
laid out, and then we'll seek to apply that principle in the end. So first of all, what is this covering that Paul continuously refers to? He says it over and over. Every man who prays with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What is he talking about with this covering? There are two major views here. One is, uh, we'll call it the bun view, and that is that women were to gather up their hair and put it on in a bun on top of their head. And so their covering was their hair gathered up on top of their head. The other view is that there was some type of covering in addition to their hair. So something, uh, some have suggested a veil. I think probably it was more in terms of something like a shawl. I believe that is what Paul is talking about here because he's referring to men with uncovered heads uh, being a good thing. And if it was hair, then he's saying that men should all be bald. I don't think that's what he was referring to. So I think he's referring to some sort of covering in addition to their hair. So what is this all about? The covering of the head is all about demonstrating a willing submission to authority. So this is women saying, if they're single, I respect my father. If they're married, saying, I respect my husband. I respect my church. I respect Jesus. I respect the Bible. And some women in the Corinthian church were showing no respect whatsoever for authority. In the Corinthian culture, if a woman wore her hair down uncovered, she was showing herself to be equated with prostitution. Numbers 5.18 says that a woman caught in adultery is to display it by taking her hair down. On the other end of the spectrum, women who shaved their heads were symbolizing unnatural relations in their lives. They were engaged in homosexual practices. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, women who shaved their heads were shameful or disgraceful. Okay, so we don't know exactly what the covering was, but the main things in the passage are the plain things, right? A good principle and interpretation. The main things that we want to get out are the things that are plain, the things that are clear to us. So what's plain here is that women are to be distinguishable from men. And in their culture, that had to do with what was on their heads or what wasn't on their heads. So here's the major principle. Women are to adorn themselves in a certain way that is different than men. So single ladies, that's adorning yourself in a way that honors and respects your dad. Married ladies, in a way that honors your husband. Not attracting attention, not taking off your wedding ring when you go out to get more attention, whatever it is. Honoring your husband in the way that you present yourself. God has appointed your father and eventually a husband to love and to provide and to care for you. Therefore, you are called to respect him and to set yourself apart from masculinity or anything that resembles any sort of rebellion or prostitution or homosexuality. So what's the deal with the guys? And yes, I will come back to head coverings. I know it's burning We'll come back to it. 
What is he saying about the men here? Men who don't exercise godly authority dishonor their heads. What is he talking about head here? It's twofold. He's talking about he himself. He's bringing dishonor onto himself. But also, what did he say in verse 3? Who is man's head? It is Christ. So men who do not exercise godly authority dishonor themselves and dishonor Christ. So Paul is calling on men to embrace their duties as men and to be men and to not be like women and to not live as boys. 60% of American Christians are females. Where are all the dudes? They're neglecting their duties. They're living as boys. Or they're masquerading around as women. And Paul is calling us to reject that and to embrace what he has called us to as men in our duties. Verse 7 He writes, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. So what is he saying? Guys, don't look like girls, right? Very simple. And in their culture, he's saying, men, don't cover your heads. And men were in false uh, religion, in uh, idol worship, were covering their heads with their togas. In our culture, that looks like men don't wear a dress and high heels. Somehow, it has become comedic in our culture for men to dress like women. It is not comedic. It is a dishonor to the glory of God. It is not funny. It is not hilarious that we would walk in the way of a woman when God has created us to be a man. And vice versa. So guys, it should be clear in your appearance that you are a dude. Paul goes on, woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? In the Proverbs, we read that certain women are a crown on man's head and others are decay in his bones. Which are you? So why is Paul so concerned about this? He's concerned because he wants to outline the fact that equality in creation, man and woman both being created in the image and likeness of God, do not negate headship. Equality does not negate headship. And head coverings were an indication of roles. A man with a covering and a woman without a covering creates confusion. It represents a mix-up of the roles within the church. And Paul feels so strongly about this that he equates this to dishonor. Look at verses 5 and 6. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to do so... Let her cover her head. We're going to deal with this issue of women praying and prophesying within the church in chapter 14. So if you're thinking, what about that? We'll deal with that later. It comes up again. 
But Paul's issue here is not mainly physical. He's not so concerned about what is on the head, but he's more concerned about what is in the head. A response to the created order of things. The submission that falls out, father, son, man, woman. So the head covering is simply symbolic of whether or not woman would carry out her role as being submissive to authority. And a lack of head covering for men is symbolic of embracing his role to lead with godly authority. So Paul's big issue is authority and masculinity and femininity. So verses 3 through 10 are not for the chauvinist to embrace. And verses 11 and 12 are not for the feminist to embrace. We have to look at it all together and see that collectively we embrace equality within specific roles that God has assigned men and women. And I want to say we need to be very careful in defining what is feminine and what is masculine, right? Some things are very obvious. A dress and high heels uh, pretty well indicates uh, something that is to be worn by a woman. But some things are not so obvious, right? What about jeans and a t-shirt? What about engaging in sports and recreation? There's a big tendency here in defining these things to be legalistic or completely blend it all together and make it mean nothing at all. We need to be very careful. What can happen is that, that guys, especially, who don't tend toward more aggressive, sort of uh, rugged things, can start to think, well, maybe I'm not masculine enough because I don't hunt deer and I like jazz music and journaling. Okay, but... Okay, look, just because... Just because a guy feeds a deer all year long, then climbs into a tree and hides from it, and he shoots it when it's right in front of him, that doesn't make him more masculine than a guy that you know enjoys art and literature. If hunting is how you're going to define masculinity, then take your shoes off, run through the forest with a spear, and stab it when you're right up next to it and gnaw it to death. Then we'll talk. But don't define masculinity by these things that you naturally like to do because it's a guy thing to do. That was free. All right. This is the same with females, right? A lady can be a lady if she doesn't like shopping for 12 hours for one pair of shoes she doesn't like in the first place and is going to take back tomorrow, right? Ladies can be ladies if they're not necessarily doing things that other ladies around them are doing. We have to be very careful here. Is it important? Yes, it's very, very important. But we must be very careful. We must not be legalistic, but we also must hold that there is a standard here. We cannot blend all of this together and say there are no differences. There certainly are. Okay, real quick. Verse 10. The angels. What is he talking about? 
This is, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? I don't know, and nobody else does either, so let's move on. <laughs> I've read about six or eight explanations about this. Okay, here's the one I like the best. You can go read more about it and decide for yourself. Angels would be offended because they are, according to Job 38.7, the guardians of the divine order. And they are the most submissive of all the creatures that God has created. And they have seen everything from the very beginning. Therefore, the angels would be offended to see anything outside of God's intended roles and order. Sounds good to me. Verse 11 and 12. Men and women need each other. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Here's the issue. Independence is not a good thing. You were not created to live with that American virtue, which is an absolute lie called independence. You were created for interdependence. Not chauvinist, not feminine, but complementarian. Working and striving together. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Genesis 2 says, Man and woman are what? One flesh. So men and women need each other, and we need each other to function in our God-given roles. Could you imagine what I would be like if I did not have my wife? The so-called battle of the sexes is evil. It's evil. It seeks to derail God's created order. God has created us with glorious roles to fulfill. And yet, we seek to battle it out to derail those because we think that we know better. We ask the same question as the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? Yes, He did. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's saying, think on these things. They're important. Where do you fall down on these issues? How do you understand the role of a man and the role of a woman and how a woman is supposed to present herself, how a man is supposed to present himself? There's really only one of two options. It's either God's way or the world's way, which seeks to completely erase the differences between men and women. But Paul writes, men are masculine and women are feminine, right? Think on these things. Where do you come out on these issues? Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, so we already talked about this a little bit, but the question today uh, that we're going to we're going to look at several right now. Uh, one of them is: uh, Is it okay today for men to have long hair? 
In Paul's culture, guys with long hair were considered to be effeminate. That's why I think all the pictures of the long-flowing, blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus are absolutely wrong. I'm certain, almost, that he didn't have long hair. And if he did have long hair, it certainly wasn't feathered and blonde like we see in the pictures. Okay, but that long hair in that culture was a symbol of femininity on a man. So in our culture, is it a sin for a guy to have long hair? Well, we don't see men with long hair today and assume that the guy is effeminate or emasculated. If he's unkempt and smelly, you might think he's unemployed, but he's not a girl or effeminate, right? We don't think that just because a guy has long hair that he is trying to appear as a female. But what is a sin, because it's against God's created order, is if a man is intentionally seeking to appear as a woman. Or if a woman is intentionally seeking to appear as a man. That's the principle we need to tie ourselves to. That's the principle. Men look as men, women as women. And this will look differently from culture to culture. Men act as men, women act as women. Let me give you an example. Whenever I would go to the Middle East, several years ago, whenever I would go into the homes of, of, uh, of people, the man would greet you at the door with a long hug, and then he would grab you by the hand and walk you around holding your hand. That's a little strange for dudes to hold hands in America, right? That is what we see in their culture. There's nothing wrong with it. They're not effeminate because they're holding your hand. They're not trying to make a move, okay? This is what they do as a part of their culture. We see those things all throughout. In the book of Acts, it calls us to greet one another with a holy kiss. Sorry, guys. If you're going to kiss me, we're going to have issues. Okay? We don't stand and kiss one another, do we? Why? Because of what that represents in our culture. And I know some of you dudes right now are thinking, I'm going to try it. Please don't. <laughs> I don't want to make a scene. So all of this applies to the big picture, right? You've all been waiting for this. <laughs> Ought Christian women in 2010 cover their heads? I come down to the text and the principle is outlined therein to say no. Because we must distinguish between timeless principles and cultural application of those principles. Think in terms of a missionary here. If you go to certain parts of Africa, not where I'm going next week, thankfully, there are, uh, there are women who simply mill about the day completely nude. It's part of their culture. There's no thought given to that whatsoever. So what would you teach a nude woman from 1 Corinthians 11? To cover her head? <laughs> no, the principle here is masculinity and femininity, right? 
I'm not trying to make light of that, but we must be careful as how we apply timeless principles to specific cultures. So the question to ask then is, does the culture assume masculinity or femininity has been rejected in what I'm doing, thus displaying rebellion against authority? So the principle we want to look at is a timeless principle. Additionally, it's something that's instinctive or natural. Paul says this in verse 14. Does not nature itself teach this? This is timeless. It's instinctive. But in cultural application, we will see variances. So whatever that is, if that's hairstyle, if that's clothes, if that's specific activities that we take part in, whatever it is, here's where we need to come down as Christians. That we must respect the sex associations of our culture and not present ourselves as one who is dissatisfied with our God-given sex and our role in submission to Christ and to one another. So if sex distinctions exist in a culture, then Christians must be the first to uphold them. And where distinctives lack in a culture, very much like ours, Christians must be boldly distinctive in upholding the differences that God has created. So we wouldn't simply say, well, feminism is the way today, so we're going to go the way of feminism. No. We must come back to the Word. What has God called us to? Authority that is godly and submission that is godly. All of which honors Christ. All of this is very important today, right? We must uphold our distinctions as men and women in our homes, in our schools, in our work, and in our church. There is a direct link I've seen it time and again. There's a direct link to femininity and authority and uh, submission. So masculine women, women who often present themselves to be masculine, do not readily submit to men. Likewise, effeminate men rarely, if ever, express adequate headship. So we must understand these distinctions that God has outlined and we must embrace them and walk in them and be thankful that God has given them to us. He has created us in this way to walk from the very beginning in unity, complementing one another. So together, all of us must submit to the authority of Jesus. Why? What is at stake? What is at stake if we don't? What's at stake is the very order of which God has created the universe. That we would show that God has not really created us to be individuals. That walk in a way that we need one another. That we need Him. That we need authority to hem us in. That we can walk in submission to Him. What's at stake is that we say something about the gospel other than what the gospel says of itself. 
that in Christ granting us a righteousness that is foreign to us, in Christ giving us a righteousness not of our own, when we walk in the roles that God has given us, we say we embrace that, we walk in that, and we trust that because we trust that when God has called us unto Himself, that He has granted us all that we need to know and love in order to walk in peace and unity with our Father. This is so much more than simply about saying, I'm a man and I'm a woman. This says a lot about who God is and what He desires from His people and beyond His covenant people, all of creation. This is an uphill battle for Christians. but We must not fall back on it. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for instruction. Thank You for granting us timeless wisdom and principles that we can hold to and walk in as Your children. Father, thank You for authority. Thank You for the authority of Christ in our lives. Thank You for the authority of one another. Thank You for the authority of the church, the authority in the home, the authority in our work, in our school. Father, thank You for giving us Godly authority in our lives that we can look to and walk with in submission joyfully because we trust. We trust Your Word. We trust that as we do so, Father, we are honoring You, we are honoring ourselves, and we are displaying and representing the glory of God as revealed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that You help us to continuously walk as biblical men and biblical women. That men would lead with godly authority and women would joyfully submit to that leadership, all under the headship of Christ, who is our Savior. We love You. We thank You, Father, that there is not a thing under the sun You have not given to us for our instruction to help us walk in and grow by And I pray, Father, that uh, if there are any who struggle with these things today, that they not feel rejected, that they not feel um, outcast, but, God, that they um, they would seek out others to encourage and help them in these things. Father, help us all to recognize our nature as continuing to fight sin, as fallen creatures who have been redeemed that there are times when we will turn to the Word and we will be uh, prone to reject what You have commanded. Help us, Lord, to be humble, to believe what You have written for our instruction through the Holy Spirit. Help us to be humble to embrace Your commands for our joy, our growth, and our satisfaction in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.